who'd been dead for some time so that, so that Saul could ask him some questions and he could get some revelation. And when Saul goes to the witch at Endor, he asks her to summon Saul from the dead. She does. And it works to the astonishment of the witch and to the, um, to the astonishment of everybody. It's immediately obvious that, that this was extraordinary and extraordinarily wicked. This was awful. The irony here, of course, in Saul taking this step and in seeking revelation through a medium, through, through a witch, the irony here is that for years, Saul has refused to listen to the priests and the prophets. He's refused to listen to God's anointed Samuel and God's anointed David. He had rejected the personal leading of God's Holy Spirit. Saul had grieved the Holy Spirit to the point that God removed his Holy Spirit from him and sent a, 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 a beguiling spirit, an evil spirit. So Saul ignored and disobeyed all the direct commands that he received from the Lord. But then when he feels like he's ready to hear from God, rather than humbling himself and rather than repenting and rather than uh, uh, going the route of of seeking forgiveness and seeking God where he is known to be speaking, Saul goes to a witch to get him to help, uh, get, get help talking to the dead. But God's law is clear, talking to dead people and trying to talk to dead people is forbidden. Asking dead people to do things for you is an abomination. God repeatedly in his law forbids these practices. Those who practice sorcery are to be put to death. And those who go to mediums, God says, I will set my face against them and I will cut them off from their people. This is not to be tolerated. And of course, when we're talking in biblical terms about mediums and spiritists and soothsayers and sorcerers, we're not talking about people who do guard tricks, right? We're, we're not talking about uh, people who do illusions for entertainment at children's birthday parties. That's, that's not the kind of magic that we're talking about. Nor are we talking about the kind of fictional magic of, you know, Gandalf, of, you know, making a bright light kill orcs and things like that. We're talking about something very specific, and that is trying to manipulate the spirit world or contact the world of the dead to, to do things for you. That's, that's what we're talking about. God God says, this is not going to be tolerated. This was the behavior of the people who were driven out of the land before Israel. This was the behavior of the Canaanites. And if you act like them, if you do the very thing that got them kicked out of the land, guess what? You're going to be kicked out of the land as well. The Lord hates mediums and spiritists and the occult. These things are an abomination. What is so loathsome about these practices and the people who practice them? It's because they seek to find knowledge and power from some other source than God. They're seeking revelation from someone else than the Lord. They claim that there are sources of wisdom outside of what God has communicated through his world and through his word. We confess there are two ways that God has communicated to man. He's got his special revelation in his written word. And there we know the specifics of what he requires of us. There we know the very, uh, the fiber of his, of his message to, to mankind. But there's another way that he communicates, and that's through general revelation. That's through the, the cosmos. That's through, you know, looking at uh, uh, an organism and saying, that, 
That didn't happen by accident. It's like looking at the stars and seeing his majesty. And, and, and this is the way God communicates, both through his world and his word. He, he, has, he has spoken. There's something else, uh, though, that, um, that, 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 the, that the spiritist or the medium is, is looking for. What, what they're saying is God hasn't said enough in, in these uh, ways. And so there are other places I need to go to find revelation and knowledge. And there are other places I need to go to find help. And what, what these practices do is they accuse God of being unwilling to reveal things that you need to know. Kind of, kind of what the serpent uh, accused God of in the garden, right? When, when, he's, when he's tempting Eve, he, in so many words, he's saying, you know, there's more to the story and God has kept you in the dark. And he's left some things out that you need to know. Here's, I've got the real message. I've got the, I've got the, the real skinny. I've, I've got the dirt on God. There are other things that, that you need to know. And so this, these practices offer man an end run around God to be like God through other avenues. It, it denies the God who has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus. It denies that he is an all-sufficient source of knowledge and power. It asks for something more than Jesus. And, and so the occult and those who practice it are bankrupt because they are deceived by Satan who has lied to them. Here's the lie. There is no other source of complete or fulfilling or lasting knowledge and power outside of the Lord Jesus. That's the lie. It's dead in. There is, there is nothing. Remember, as, as you wrestle with things you know and things you don't know, remember that it's not a sin to be finite. It's not a sin to not know everything. It's not a sin to not be everywhere at the same time. God created you a finite creature. You don't know everything. You can't be everywhere. You are not all powerful. Your powers and your knowledge are finite. And it's not a sin when you make a decision based on what you know and who you are. That's, 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 that's not a sin. And yet I, I hear people regret decisions or, 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 or feel terrible as if, you know, I, I, I should have been there to help, but I wasn't able to do. Well, you can't be everywhere and you can't know everything. But what sorcery and, and the occult offer is this, this other route and saying, well, God hasn't done such a good job. He hasn't told me everything I need to know. And so I've got to go around this revelation that he's given me. I've got to go, I've got to go this other way and I've got to get to it. And that's what Saul is trying to do. He's saying, God has been silent to me. And rather than seeking God where he is found, he goes this other way. Now, um, in, in spite of this being so clear and so obvious, there, there are branches of the church, branches of the Christian church that persist in the very same sin of Saul's either out of superstition or idolatry, there are branches of the church that still make prayers to the dead and ask the dead to do things for them, believing that there's some spiritual power in doing so. But this is nothing but folly. This is nothing but an abomination. This is nothing but idolatry. Our dead relatives and the dead saints are not all-knowing and they're not all powerful. They too are finite. They're not all seeing. Even if you could ask them to do something for you, what are they supposed to do about it? Especially today when we have the perfect mediator in Jesus, what good does it do to pray to St. Peter or St. Andrew 
when we have a direct line to Jesus. Imagine the governor or even the president calling you into his office and saying, you know, I've heard some good things about you and I really like some of your ideas. What can I do for you today? Is there anything that I can do? Is there any legislation that, that you would like me to kind of start uh, the legislators get to work get to work on any initiatives I can I can get started for you and your answer to that sitting in front of the governor or in front of the president your answer to that is ah thank you I appreciate the offer but you know I passed the janitor in the hallway I'd rather tell him and see if he'll pass it along to you so that you can maybe hear what I want that way it's unnecessary. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus has asked you, he has required you to tell him what you want. Why would you go to any other? Why do we pray to any other? It's unnecessary and it's offensive. And it's the same sin that Saul engages in, in trying to stir up Samuel to, to find revelation, to find a route to truth through a departed saint. Now, why do I bring this up? And why did I want to be sure to cover this before we moved on? It's because there are folks from time to time who pass through our orbit in, in our churches. They, they come from watered-down evangelicalism, but they get, they get excited about liturgy. They get excited about the church calendar. They get excited about tradition and history. And then they never find the brake pedal. They, they, while, while I can defend any one of these things biblically, I can defend the church calendar, I can defend our liturgy biblically, and I have, and I will continue to do so. But for some reason, they end up eventually in the Roman church or Eastern Orthodoxy. And, and there may be some of you who see the, the worship and the calendar, and you think, are, are we going to like wheel a statue of Mary into here someday? You know, is that going to happen? Well, I can tell you absolutely not. Absolutely not, because it's idolatrous. It's not biblical. There's no biblical defense. And if you're even slightly inclined in that direction, or if you're slightly attracted to that, you need to be reminded that this whole business of talking to saints is as offensive to Jesus as Saul's actions were. It's bizarre. It's weird. It's wrong. Why would you want any other intercessor? Why would you go to any other mediator but Jesus? It's a denial of the high priestly role of Jesus. Why did Jesus go through the cross and the grave to be our high priest if any man or woman could be a sufficient mediator? So I often think that maybe Samuel's words to Saul are the same words that if we could hear, if someone prays to St. Thomas or St. Peter or prays to Mary, I, I wonder if the very same words of Samuel would come back to them if, if they could hear. When, and that would be, why are you bothering me? Why are you coming to me? That's what Samuel says. Why, 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 have you, why have you disturbed me? Why are you asking me these questions? So, so prayers to saints, it's not a quaint tradition. It's wicked and it's demonic. Um, and today also, be, because um, Reformation Day falls in the middle of the week, uh, this would be Reformation Day, and next week would be All Saints Day. We're having our celebration next week, but at least there's your Reformation Day thought for, for the week that uh, we, we are not and will never, uh, by the grace of God, pursue this folly of praying to uh, saints and, and, and setting up other mediators besides the Lord Jesus. Now let's move on to chapter 29. You see, aren't you glad I didn't go through all that and I let you out early last week? So now we can get to chapter 29. The scene now flashes back to David. We left David on a cliffhanger. Let me catch you up. 
back in chapter 27, remember David is living among the Philistines. He's living there and he's accepted by them because he is known as an opponent of Saul. And the king of the Philistines, Achish, or at least the king of the Gath, uh, king of Gath, the city of the, the Philistines, loves David. He's accepted him. He thinks David has defected to him. He gives David a city, Ziklag, and he says, go use that as your base of operations. David has about three to 5,000 people with him at this point. Uh, he's got a small city of people uh, with him. So David's living among the Philistines, and what the king of Philistia thinks he's doing is attacking Judah. He's going out on these raids and he's bringing back the spoils, except he's not attacking Judah. He's attacking Amalekites, a Canaanite tribe. He's attacking Amalekites within the territory of Judah. So David never leaves, lays his finger on a single uh, uh, Israelite. David has made friends with the king, and now we find at, at the end of chapter 27 that the Philistines are about to go and attack Israel. Now, David is among them, He's seen as their ally. What is David going to do? How is he going to keep up this ruse? Well, we're left on this cliffhanger. We, we switch to chapter 28. We cut to Saul. Saul goes to the witch. Samuel says, Saul, you're going to die tomorrow in battle. Another cliffhanger. We're cut, we, we cut back to David. You see, we just kind of left... That story's left hanging, and this story's left hanging. What the author of 1 Samuel is doing is he's bringing these two stories together to a fine point at the end, but we get a little bit caught up with David, and then we get a little bit caught up with Saul, and now we're back to David in, in chapter 29, and the question is, what is David going to do? Is he going to keep playing along and act like he's going to march into battle against Israel, or is now the time to reveal to Achish, king of Gath, you know what? This has all been a big deception. I have been uh, raiding Amalekites, not uh, Judahites. I haven't been, I haven't been raiding Israel. Um, what's going to happen? David is very vulnerable and exposed here. Well, the author is layering the story so that we see the contrast between David and Saul. Saul is the king of Israel, and yet he's acting like a pagan. He's working toward the destruction of Israel with everything he does. David, on the other hand, is acting like the true king of Israel. David is among the pagans, living among the nations, but he's always acting in favor of his people, Israel. He's working for her peace and working for her deliverance out there among the nations. Just like Jesus works from the outside uh, to save Israel and to save us. Uh, he's, throughout his ministry, Jesus is on the outside looking in while the kings on the thrones of the nations are corrupt, they're compromised, but the true king, the true deliverer is waiting in the wings, and that's the picture that we have here. Well, at the beginning of chapter 29, we find that the Philistines are gathered together at Aphek. And if we were playing Bible trivia or 1 Samuel trivia, we would say, where have you heard of Aphek before? What has happened at Aphek? Well, Israel and Philistia have already fought there. Way back at the beginning of Samuel, we read about the Battle of Aphek, where the Ark of the Covenant was captured, where the corrupt Eli and his wicked sons uh, were, were killed. His, his sons were killed. Eli fell backwards off of a stool when he found out the bad, no, bad news. On the same day, uh, a grandson was born to Eli, and he was named Ichabod, because the glory had departed from Israel. Ichabod's name mean, means the glory has departed. So even though in that situation, back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, even though the house of Eli was condemned and taken apart, God was at work raising up his replacement in Samuel. 
Now, this reference to Aphek. Now, now we're, now we're gathered back in Aphek again, and it reminds us that things are about to happen pretty much the same way very soon. Just as we saw God's judgment on the house of Eli, God is about to judge the house of Saul. And just as God raised up a deliverer, he raised up a, 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 a redeemer, a, a, a deliverer for, for Israel through Samuel, so he's about to do that again through through David, and David is going to take Saul's place. As the scene goes, as, as the chapter unfolds, as I read just a few minutes ago, we see the Philistines arranged in formation as an army. They're on a march in orderly array. It's a military parade. They're passing for review and inspection. Each section of the army is being brought under the eyes of the rulers of the cities. And Achish, the king, brings up the rear with David and his men in attendance with him. Now, as, as this last company marches past the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the generals, the Philistine army generals suddenly feel very uneasy at the presence of David and his men among them. And they refer to them coldly as these Hebrews. They say, what are these Hebrews doing here? And we're going out to attack Hebrews, right? That's who we're invading. And, and who's bringing up the rear? A company, an army of Hebrews. This, this doesn't make sense to the Philistine commanders. Achish, though, is, is such a fan of David, and he's so proud of David that he can't imagine any of the Philistines would have any objections against bringing David along with to fight the king of Israel. I mean, he's, he's good at what he does, and he's got all these men who are also good at fighting, and they've been opposing Saul, so you know that we want them on our side. So Achish, the king, is incredulous. He says, what, what are you talking about? Why do you protest? Of course he's going to be loyal to me. Look at all he's done for me all this time. I've never found any fault in him. He's got a great track record with me. What Achish says is true. David had never done anything to harm Achish, but, but David had also kept Achish in the dark about everything that he was doing. Uh, David never hurt him, but... David had never laid a finger on an Israelite the whole time he was serving Achish. Just like uh, he, he had never hurt Achish either, just like he had never hurt Saul. What's funny here is that Achish, a king of the Philistines, treats David better than Saul treat, treats David. Uh, Achish defends David. Achish declares David guiltless. Achish stands up for David. E even though David is deceiving him, Achish is David's protector and friend, while Saul pursues David to kill him, even, even though David never did anything to deserve it. Achish made David one of his most trusted warlords. Achish gave him a city, while Saul drove David out from his presence. David, as a foreshadow of Jesus, uh, shows us uh, another little glimpse into the life of, of Jesus, where Achish is kind of playing the role of Pilate here while Saul is like Herod and the Sanhedrin. The foreigner, the Gentile, the outsider, pronounces David innocent. He loves David, just like Pilate, you know, pronounced David, Jesus innocent. I, I don't see any fault in this man. But the Jewish authorities were sure that Jesus was a traitor and deserved death, just as Saul is sure that David is deserving of death. Well, with everything flipped around here, we're, we're, we're bound to have some tension, and that's exactly what we have. Even with this impassioned plea from Achish, please let him go with us. He's good. I can vouch for him. The Philistine commanders are not convinced. 
The princes of Philistia are angry with Achish at the suggestion of bringing a Hebrew army to go fight the Hebrews. This doesn't make sense. We don't need a variable. We don't need a loose cannon. What's going to keep David from turning on us in the middle of battle and serving as a, a fifth column? I, I think their anger with Achish is justified. Uh, I'm sure that, that you know, they, they were incredulous. What, what are you thinking? David has Achish fooled, but not the rest of the Philistines. They can see where this is headed. They know that what's going to happen is we're going to go into battle. Oh, by the way, the Hebrews are at the back of us. So, so this little Hebrew regiment is at the rear, and we're going to fight Hebrews to the front. And then we're going to be a big Hebrew sandwich. We're going we're to be closed in on both sides. We're going to be destroyed. David is going to warn Israel. And then, and then they say literally, he, he's, David's going to present our heads to King Saul as an offering. That's how this is going to go. We see this. Uh, Achish, they say. Uh, this is their final protest. They say, this is the guy that was named in that big hit song all the kids were singing a few years ago. Remember that song? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Achish, what were they referring to? These ten thousands. They weren't ten thousand deer. They weren't ten thousand squirrels. They weren't ten thousand Amalekites. They were ten thousand Philistines. This is that guy. This is the one who's killed ten thousand Philistines. And they were singing about it. This is a terrible idea to assume that he's with us. Well, were they right to be suspicious of David? Yes, (laughs) they were. Would David do exactly what they feared he would do? Absolutely. David has never stretched out his hand against an Israelite. He's never stretched out his hand against the Lord anointed, uh, Lord's anointed. The one time he tried, remember, he almost did something really foolish with Nabal, and the Lord stopped him. Outside of that, David has, has promised both Saul and Jonathan that he would protect and defend the household of Israel and the household of Saul. All this time that he was under the protection of Achish, he kept that vow. There is no way that David would have been a part of attack, uh, an attack against Israel. He would have stuck right with the Philistines, right up to the battlefield, and then he would attack the Philistines from the rear or from the inside out, and then, and then he would have done exactly what they said. He would have presented their heads as trophies. Uh, he would have done that. If, let's just play this out, this scenario out, if David had stuck with the Philistines, and if he had fought against Israel with them, He could never have convinced Israel that he could have been their king. That would have been impossible. He couldn't stand before Israel as a king of Israel having that on his record. Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that time when I attacked you. Who were my allies? Oh, yeah, Philistia. But but anyway, put all that behind you. I'm your king now. That that never would have happened. David had a hard enough time, as we'll see. David had a hard enough time pulling Israel together as it was. If that were on his record, he could have never been king, and this would have been such a disaster. Well, now, David... David, on the other hand, as much as he doesn't want to go with Philistia to attack Israel, he's not upset that Philistia is attacking Israel. Those are two different things, right? The Philistines are going to war against Saul. They don't have to submit to Saul. He does. They didn't take a vow to protect Saul. He did. Now, now David can't strike at his own people, but Philistia can and they can be God's instruments of judgment. Just just like David could sit back and wait for God to deal with Nabal, now he can sit back and wait for God to deal with Saul through the means of the Philistines. So so now Achish gets this this hot burning argument from his princes. You know, you ever open up a 
a pizza oven and you feel that hot wave of, of, uh, of, of heat coming out of there. That's what, that's what Achish gets when he goes to the Philistine, his Philistine princes. They, they have all this protest and now he's got to go back to David and he feels like, I got to explain to David that I love him. He just can't go with us this time. He, he thinks this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation, but actually this is a huge relief to David. Let's pick it up and read the rest of the chapter from verse 6. Achish called David and said to him, Surely as Yahweh lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, but, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord and King? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master servants who have come up with you. And as soon as you're up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Achish apologizes to David for letting David down and he praises his faithfulness. Well, well David hasn't done what Achish thinks he's done, remember. He, he hasn't done everything that Achish thinks he's done for Philistia. And now David has to act disappointed. Oh, shucks, I don't get to go do this. I don't get to go be put in this awfully awkward position. Oh, uh, I guess we'll just have to deal with it. But, but David is totally relieved at, at this. He's, he's being delivered, but he can't act like it. You know, he's got, he's got to wait until he's out of sight to rejoice. Uh, David was sent back to Ziklag, the city that Achish gave him. David was sent back in the morning. That phrase comes up three times in two verses. Whenever, thing, whenever something gets repeated, especially in Hebrew, you know it's supposed to be emphasized. He goes in the morning. Well, what happens in the morning? We're reminded of that Passover theme again. We're about to come up on a new day after the night of the Passover. Israel is going to be released from the Philistines and enter a new age. David is about to be freed from exile and begin reign as, as the new king over a new people. There's so much to admire here in the way that David navigates through this entire affair with Achish. Here he is in a foreign land building alliances with pagans and unbelievers. But when it comes down to it, his highest allegiance is to Yahweh, and it has to be. Uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, if I've got to choose between them, it's no question. There's no question in my mind who I'm going to side with. And here David is, is just so skillful and wise. But it's not completely that David is, is this brilliant strategist, but, but that he has confidence in whatever the Lord has him to do, wherever the Lord directs him, things are going to be okay. And I'm, I'm ready to face whatever the next challenge is. He doesn't drag his feet on the way uh, to, to muster the armies, nor does, does he bluster threats when he finds out the Philistines are gathering for war. He just gets his men together and they go along with it, just waiting to see where all this is headed. When Achish is standing up for David, defending him against the unwavering Philistines, David just hangs back and lets all of this play out. 
If he ends up going to war, David knows what he's going to do. If he ends up getting sent back home, David knows what to do there too. But, but he isn't going to take matters into his own hands, and he's not going to try to start steering things and manipulating things. He's already seen how that works. God has already delivered him in his own dealings with Saul and Nabal. So these episodes have made David very patient and pliable and willing to wait on God's direction and leading and willing to go with the flow of God's work and plan. As it turns out, David didn't even have to go into the whole mess of going to battle. The Lord delivers him through the fears of the Philistines, and David doesn't have to do a thing. Now, what I want you to see as we kind of wrap this up is that that contrast between David's confidence and his peace and his faithfulness, his, his quiet certainty that God is going to work this out. Contrast that against what we just thought about in, David, in, in Saul's panic and drama and desperation, which led to him going to a witch. David could have really messed things up a lot here, but he's patient. He's not reactionary. He's not uh, fearful. To have that kind of presence of mind, that kind of rock-solid, cast-iron assurance and trust in who God is, God is my deliverer, and he's going to get me through this. He's going to work this out. And what, what does God end up doing for David? Just as calmly, just as subtly, just as quietly, the problem goes away. It, it, it just, it's like it takes care of itself. Now, things don't take care of themselves. A, a sovereign God takes care of things, but he often makes it look as if it just took care of itself. Now, now there are certainly some situations in the Bible, in history, in our lives that, that call for thunder, that call for brimstone, that call for earthquakes. There are so many more situations that God works out in this subtle, quiet, understated way. There, there, there are situations we get into that are muddy and sticky and awful uh, that we have to work through. But even those, they're not helped by our attempts to thunder, to send brimstone, or to call down uh, earthquakes or hellfire ourselves. Nothing is accomplished by episodes of insanity like Saul displays, just grasping at whatever he think of, uh, whatever he thinks he can get to control his situation and manipulate it. David's Peaceful, steady confidence in God's quiet, subtle care is what we see in this account. So in, in light of that, how often do you and I get ourselves worked into knots over things God already has a solution for? Even if David lost a night of sleep over this, we don't read that he did. What good would have that, that have done? What, where would have that have got him? And I, I've been there and I, I fail in this way as, as I know many of you do in, in losing sleep and losing appetite and running things over and over and over in our heads like a hamster in a wheel when, when we're worried or troubled or anxious. We, we get tied up while our sovereign and merciful God is working his purposes out in unseen ways. He's delivering us while we're just all twisted up and not, not at rest, which takes me back to the folly of the occult and necromancy and prayers to the saints. All unbelief, whatever shape it takes, those forms, the, the, the anxious, worrisome forms, all forms of unbelief scream, Jesus, you are not sufficient. 
That's what unbelief says. Jesus, you are not enough. You are not a good enough savior. You, you help out sometimes. I mean, you're on the team, right? So to speak, you're on the team, but we need more. We need to add to your work. We need to add to your righteousness. What do we add? Well, we've got to add my works, my worries, my anxieties, my techniques, my attempts to manipulate the world, creation, the spirits, our worldly philosophies. We, we need to add that as well. And that's a false gospel. Whether, whether we articulate it that way or not, it's a false gospel. Unbelief says, Jesus, you're not enough. I, I need something else. I need something more. It's not, it's not cutting it. I, I know you tried, but it's not, it's not working out. I need, I need something else. And the scriptures call us to put an end to that idolatry, to crucify our unbelief, and to confess and believe that Jesus is most certainly enough. In fact, he is more than enough. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. His grace abounds. His mercies are never ceasing. He loves to deliver his people. In fact, he's pretty good at it. He, he loves to deliver his people. Ultimately, all of his people get delivered right to his presence, right? I mean, uh, that's about the worst thing that can happen, right? When we think about what, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst thing that could happen is that this problem where these people could kill me, and then what? Well, I get taken right to the feet of Jesus. Okay, that's the worst thing that can happen, right? Jesus still delivers you. That's the worst thing, the ultimate, most glorious deliverance. That's, that's the worst thing that can happen. So, people of God, with David, with his servant David, lay aside the weight of trying to work out your own deliverance. Lay aside the weight of working out your own salvation from whatever is grieving you or tearing you up. Lay aside the burden of your own sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior. He will deliver you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glimpses in the life of your servant David, and we pray that we would possess this same, same quiet, steady confidence that we see revealed in him as, as he continues to mature under your shepherding and under your care. So, Father, may we be a people who uh, reflect that, uh, not because uh, we're, we're trying to be like David, but we're trying to be like you. We're trying to be like your son. Teach us this and shape us and conform us to the image of your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.